The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. We're very happy to have you uh, listening to us this fine morning, this fine Wednesday morning, freezing cold morning down here in Boston, but that's okay. Uh, We are excited to have uh, with us today Mike Beer. Mike Beer is the is a Connors Rob Professor of Business Administration, Emeritus at the Harvard Business School, and Chairman of TruePoint, which is a research-based consultancy that he co-founded. Mike's teaching, research, and consulting activities are in the areas of organizational effectiveness, change, and human resource management. He's authored nine books, and we are going to be focused on his latest book, which is called Higher Ambition, How Great Leaders Create Economic and Social Value. Welcome, Mike. Hello, Chrissy. Nice to be with you. Well, we're very happy to have you here. And um, I have to say, I, I read your book this past, finished it this past week, and I was very taken by by the stories. Um, what I thought was so interesting about what you were doing in this book was that you were really highlighting the, what, the, the theme that I came away with was certain humanity of these companies and the CEOs um, who are behind behind the companies. Let's 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 delve right into um, let, let's let's delve right into the book for a second here and talk about uh, how did how did you come up with this con- concept? I know that you're in this field and you've written a number of books. Why was this the latest iteration, and why did you feel like this was so important to address? Uh, well, uh, my interest in this uh, subject uh, of uh, of integrating humanity, as you put it, of values with uh, with business purpose. Uh, started back in uh, 1980 when, uh, as a faculty member at HBS, I went out to uh, write a case on Hewlett-Packard. And I was blown away by what I found. Mm-hmm. Here was a company that, uh, even in, the, in that at that time, and I think they've always been one of the, one of the points to make here, is that there have always been companies who've operated this way. This is not a new idea. Uh, but at Hewlett-Packard, uh, I found uh, I, I found uh, the CEO, uh, the, the the two founding members, uh, totally understanding that the purpose of their business was uh, was not just to create profits. In fact, David Packard uh, famously uh, uh, was known to have uh, talked to a group of CEOs in the 40s and articulated that the purpose of of, of his company and of companies in general was to uh, add value to society, to do good for society, not just for the shareholders. And uh, he was almost thrown out uh, <laughs> by, by those in the room. Uh, so, so this is always. I, I think this theme has been that got me really excited, and and, to, and integrated that with my work in organization development. I was uh, I had come from Corning, where I spent eleven years. Also, by the way, a higher ambition company historically, um, uh, a company that was concerned about about uh, about multiple stakeholders, not just uh, not just a shareholder. And the company in which I'd done a lot of work in helping managers. Um, create and develop uh, their leadership, uh, their leadership of their organizations in a way that was consistent with the idea of building a strong, resilient, and effective organization. So, uh, all those themes came together. Have been around my work for a long time, and uh, when I wrote High Commitment, High Performance, which was also about, which was really inspired by Hewlett Packard, uh, that was written more. Uh, from the point of view of an academic and consultant working with business. And we said, gee, let's go find the leaders 
that manage this way, and let's find out what their story is. How do they tell the story? I told the story in High Commitment, High Performance from the point of view of what's the evidence here? What, what are some examples, and how do you intervene and transform companies to this? Let's go find out what the leaders say, and that's how this book uh, came about. It, it, it really is fascinating because there is a theme, and I know that there are probably, you know, even though we've just started the conversation, people listening are saying, okay, but you have shareholders, a lot of these public companies, you have the shareholders, you have to think of the bottom line, You're, you, you really have to think about how we're going to drive movement and profit. And it, it's all well and good that you think from a higher purpose, but how do these people actually have that capability and how do they, how do they make it work and also show the numbers to the shareholders and the boards? Well, uh, all, uh, let me just make the point that higher ambition leadership is hard. <laughs> it's not easy, okay? Uh, the easiest thing to do is to simply uh, respond to capital markets. When analysts call you about where you, why, why your profits are not in line and three cents below, uh, below what you projected, uh, to go out and knee-jerk response, lay off some people and cut costs. I mean, that's easy. Um, Archie Norman, who's also in our book, uh, told us, and when he took off, t- took over um, uh, as the grocery chain in the UK, which is now part of Walmart. You know, the easiest thing to do was to cut. I mean, he had to do some of that. The hard thing, as he pointed out, was to really create a great company. And uh, and, and and but I think these CEOs do it by understanding that the actions and the decisions they make have to be have to be uh, aligned not just with the shareholders' interests, but with the idea of building an institution for the long term, an institution that, that is there for customers in a, in a way that's responsible, that's there for investors in a way that's responsible, that's there for community, and, for, and more importantly, for the employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and making this and so they have this framework in mind, uh, and they they are constantly going through it through through balancing acts, okay, a juggling act, if you will, of figuring out how to do this in a way that that serves all of these constituencies most effectively. And and but but they understand that they have to make some tough decisions. You know, the, some of these people have laid off a lot of people, uh, have had to cut costs, have to restructure when they took over companies that were in trouble. So it wasn't like you know, a naive approach to business. It, these people understand they have to meet the numbers, and mm-hmm. and but they go beyond asking that question. They most importantly, they're humans. Okay, they they mm-hmm. they recognize their humanity. They recognize their values. They recognize that business is not just about money it is also about uh about values and 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 contribution to uh, adding total value if you will to to multiple stakeholders and and so it's hard to define an overall arching thing that they do it's it's a balancing act basically mm-hmm. constantly checking their, their you know if i'm going to lay off these employees what is the what is what is the if i have to do some cost cutting what is the impact i'm going to have on my culture mm-hmm. uh, what am i what is the impact on the social contract that i've created um, and more importantly, and I think this is really critical, is not just how do you respond in a tough situation, but how do you create a company that you don't have to face? You have to have few, fewer. You have to face fewer of these of these area of the of these points of decisions. Um, and this gets back into things I learned at Hewlett Packard, but I think which is true of a company like Southwest Airlines is the, is saying you know we're going to run this company so we don't have to lay off people, or Lincoln Electric, we're going to run this company so we don't have to lay off people. Uh, now, not all the comp- not many of the companies in our sample were not at that point, 
but they certainly right. considered what they had to do in the short term uh, uh, in, in, a, in a considered way, recognizing the humanity of the organization itself and the cultural glue they were trying to create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book definitely. I mean, the book mentions Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest. And, and one of the things that I was, I, I was struck by was how he he talks about creating a real team at the top, which yep. isn't which isn't it sets the, the the organization up so they exactly what you're saying they don't have to do those the the sweep of firings because they're setting up a team at the top which then trickles down is that does, is yeah, that that's right and they set up the team at the top I mean all these company all these CEOs paid a lot of attention to the top team. Uh, and they sort of followed Jim Collins' uh, 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 sort of dictum, which is who first, what later, okay, or second. And, mm-hmm. and, and that basically who was, on, who was on the team mattered, and they had to be aligned around the values. So if you don't have alignment around the values, then things get really tough, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, values first, strategy second, okay? Uh, both of those things are uh, alignment and senior team. But then also thinking through the policies and practices and and all the way from what I learned really early on in Hewlett Packard was things about financial policies matter. Okay. If you take a lot of debt and you, and you uh, load up the company with debt and then you, you, you leverage your, your company, you put yourself in a position uh, that, that basically is, is going to force you eventually to have to make some bad, harmful things. When I went to Hewlett Packard and I think this captures the spirit of this and, and I got this from Gary Kelly as well. You know, uh, I, I asked uh, uh, the chief financial officer, Bob uh, Wayman, uh, Bob, I, I noticed that you don't have any long-term debt, and, he, and I, this doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I'm, I talk to my financial colleagues at the Harvard Business School, leverage matters. And he said, you don't understand, Mike. He said, we reason we, don't, we self-finance is because we want to limit how fast we grow, because if we grow too fast, we're unable to select people who fit the company because we're rushing to get people because we're trying to, and by the way, if we go too fast and take on debt, we put ourselves in a position of having to lay off people. We've decided we don't want to do that. So there was a set of policies and practices, and if you will, that enabled them to maintain stability, enough stability to maintain the culture over time. Southwest very much, you know, Southwest two cities a year, you know, even though they right. had requests for 10 or 15 cities they could move into. Right. I so remember that I kind of reading. discipline, that, that self-discipline. Yeah, it it is, and I remember reading that about um, the analogy of a, of, of a child growing too fast. You know, yeah. it's not healthy for a child when their bones grow too fast. Right, and Paul, I believe Paul Buckle at at, uh, at Nestle made that point. Yeah, right, and 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 talking about. Um, how you just want to stay the course and some people call you boring and say, well, come on, but you have incremental growth. It's just sustainable growth. Right. And, it's sustainable uh, growth. Exactly. exactly. So, all right, well, let, let's move on to the, to the, um, to the internal the structure of companies, because obviously one of the big themes here is is engaging the employees in a way that, that works. Right. Um, it's not, not, um, it's not being naive, as you say, said before, it's about, listening. And there's a certain level of humility that all of these CEOs possess um, that was really touching to me. And part of it was that they really got into the trenches. Give me some examples of, from your book of, of, of ones that really struck you and stood out. Well, Val Gooding, uh, first of all, what struck me was that they all understood, they, you know, as, as Peter Sands, who is the CEO of Chartered Bank, one of, is in Chapter 2 of our book, which I think is a great case yes. example of, of this. You know, he, he recognized early on 
that that you know connecting emotionally with with getting people to connect emotionally with the company, not just intellectually. That the enterprise is not just a rational entity where you add up numbers and subtract numbers and make sure things come out right financially. That there's a cultural component to this, an emotional component to this, and he. Uh, and, you know, so one of the interesting things he did right at the beginning, he, he knew he had a, a diverse diverse group of people all from all over the world. Uh, you know, the first thing he did with his first 300, with his meeting with, of his top 300, when he took over CEO, was flash a picture on, on, on the screen uh, of, of him, of, of, two, of two children, a, a girl and a boy at two years old. Uh, in, uh, you know, and, one of the, and the girl was clearly, uh, was, was, Indonesian, and mm-hmm. and he he said you know and the first thing he said is that that picture came up not the financial numbers not the strategy not the goals that picture came I said that's my that was my that's a that's my girlfriend mm-hmm. uh, of, of when I was two and the daughter of my nanny and and he did that to to point out to the diverse nature of the enterprise and his embracing of diversity. Um, but and, a lot and it really of these was. symbolic Wasn't acts, he raised in Indonesia? I'm sorry. He had been raised in Indonesia. His parents had been overseas, and, and he was raised in Indonesia for part of his, part of his life, mm-hmm. and in this early part of his life. So he was able to connect emotionally. And I think people are do. Uh, our CEOs spent a lot of time understanding they had to work on culture. They had to get shared shared values, shared norms. Uh, so, for example, Val Gooding, uh, the CEO of Bupa, a healthcare company in the UK, you know, said she worked. She she spent so much time working and talking to people about uh, and listening to people. First of all, listening to their concerns and telling them about the values and who she was. She that uh, she said she got bored after a while with making the same speeches, but she knew that that was an essential part of her job. And incidentally, when she did it. One of the things she wanted to signal, again, this is using symbolism powerfully, she wanted to signal that this was an open company, and it was open to, and, and she wanted critique of managers to be critiquing themselves and to be critiquing each other, and so on. So she brought her 360-degree feedback back to, to each talk and said, these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses seen by my peers and my subordinates. Um, I just want you to know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, very important signal that this is going to be an open company or uh, David Lissy, um, uh, organizing employees around defining what he calls the heart principles, the norms for the company, or uh, Tim Soso at at Cummins, uh, organizing various groups around the world to help define the values and the strategic and vision, strategic vision of the company, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, redefining Cummins from an engine company to uh, put great, uh, to a company that brought the power of 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 Cummins to help people, which is a whole reframing of the business. Now you may say, well, that, he still got to create, en- he still got to make engines. Of course he does, but it's reframing. Uh, reframing the purpose of the company, or or Peter Sands reframing, framing the purpose of the company's as the motto here is here for good, which had a double entendre. We're here to help our customers for good. We're not going away, but we're also here to do good, and yeah. and, and and so help getting people involved in redefining and reframing the purpose of the company. Extremely powerful, extremely and, powerful. And I th- yeah, I think that one one example, um, you know, with with Cummins. Um, and Solso is that he said something, I, I believe it was him, I, I, may not, I may be wrong, but shortening the psychological distance. I, I found that to be an incredibly powerful statement because when you have a diverse 
culture um, over your company, whether it be you know thirty thousand employees, three hundred thousand employees, when you when you create community out of diversity. Um, you're shortening that psychological distance. So there's not that misunderstanding that you have within the confines of the company. And then you're able to move it forward. Do you think that that's kind of what they're, is that on Mark? They're kind of getting, trying to get to that shorting, shortening that, that distance you have. Oh, absolutely. What, what you look, what these companies are about is changing the nature of the con the psychological contract. This is an implicit contract, not a written contract between a company and the employees from transactional, Okay, if you think what a lot of companies do is they have a transactional relationship with their employees. Come here, we'll give you money, title, and options. Uh, we'll give you something to do that you really like. The implicit uh, and, and enticing them with with the nature of the transaction. Uh, and I think what that does is it makes people very transactional when they're thinking about the company. And, of course, if there's somebody who offers more uh, money or better title, or I'm going to go. And what they're doing is changing the contract from transactional to being values-based, okay, to being aligned around human values and, and, about, and about the purpose of the higher purpose of the firm. Uh, and, and that has a very powerful effect, and it, it, it has many... By the way, it has many spillover effects into why these companies are can be can be performing for sustainably over time. Uh, that basically people are there because they identify with the company in emotional way. Emotional attachment is the word here, not monetary attachment, not status attachment, not transactional attachment. Mm. But eventually, equates to a financial. Absolutely. All these CEOs understood that they had to meet earnings, uh, particularly in the U even more in the U.S. than anywhere else, right? Uh, but even in Europe, I mean, that's you got to meet you, you got to meet those expectations, and they understood mm -hmm. that. They, they, there's nothing soft about these CEOs. No, there these isn't. That's what, I mean. It, it seems like, and I want to make sure that our listeners understand this, and and that's a very important point that you brought up. You, you know, earlier too, they, they, they make tough decisions and these are not, they're not, these aren't softies, so to speak, no, both they're men, not. They, men and women, they are making really difficult decisions and they're doing it on behalf of the company. So if they let someone go, it's not, it, they look at it as, yes, we actually have to let them go, but we're doing it for the benefit of the company, right. not to that person. And I well, thought and that they, was, right, yeah. right, exactly right. And, 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 and the way that they do that is by always framing their actions in terms of the long-term value for building and sustaining the institution. So their social contract, their psychological contract, is about coming to work at an institution which has higher purpose. Uh, the framing of a layoff or a restructuring uh, or an acquisition or a spinoff, you know, which is hard, you know, it is always in terms of what's best for the institution's long-term survival and sustainable performance. And and performance not just financially, but sustainable, sustaining the higher purpose of, of the organization. And by the way, they do that by also being hard on themselves, okay? So at, uh, at the United Stationers, which by the way is not in our book, it's a company we ran into just as we were putting the book to bed, um, you know, Dick Gochner, who is the who who is the CEO, and by the way, also is on our advisory board of the Two Point Center for High Ambition Leadership, a not for profit we've created um, to to really foster this, uh, is is basically uh, you know took pay cuts. 
you know, if we're asking people to, uh, to we're laying people off, we're going to take and 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 we're having a, a pay freeze. We're gonna we're gonna take a pay. We're gonna cut off our salary as well, and we're gonna do it so it's very clear we are making sacrifice. This is about getting people away from self-interest to making sacrifice for the larger purpose and the institution. And to convince the employees that that's in their best interest is the art well, the interest, behind the business. It's in the interest of the institution. It's again, mm-hmm. it's not. It's the interest of of sustaining the purpose of of what we're doing. That's how it's being framed. Obviously, the people who are being laid off. It's not in their self interest to be laid off. I mean, no, and and also to do that in a humane and and effective way. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, I mean, you know, you you know, famously uh, the stories about employees being escorted by guards out of a out of a company premises, you know, at three, at five o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, and being told they can't return. I mean. That, that's not how these companies do that if they have to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk about, um, <laughs> the, 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 I really enjoyed the, the, the word, and I may not even pronounce it right, SISU? Yeah, um, leadership, yeah. Fin- it's a Finnish word. It means the courage, will, perseverance, and endurance that allow a person to do such things as to walk for hours in meter-deep snow right. with a conviction that there's a warm house at the end of the journey. Um a few CEOs bring this concept up. Um, let's talk a little bit more about about this. Yeah. Well, by the way, the the, the CISU uh, leadership we were made aware of this term by two of our authors, which are who are Swedish. So they huh. understood the term and suggested it as a way of framing uh, what we saw. I mean, the leader, the, the CEOs themselves bring out the word CISU. They, what they told us, though seem to us to be CISU leadership. That is in a sense of the spirit of, of the definition you just you just gave. Mm-hmm. And and basically what we found was if what doing this is unconventional. You have to you have to do things that are that are harder than you know, as I said earlier, it's easy to to cut people lay off people right away when you're earning small. It's harder to make the case to Wall Street that you're going to change, uh, you're not going to do that because you're working for the long term. This is your long term strategy. This is why we do it, and blah blah blah. So, basically, uh, we found that leaders had to uh, do be be tough and courageous in a lot of different ways, including being tough on on employees that they don't want to be tough on when they have to restructure, but also with other stakeholders. Uh, Sustaining their vision of what they're doing and 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 going along this harder path, because what hap- what's true about the let's let's just be clear we're in a, in an environment where the conventional wisdom is that your purpose of the firm is to maximize shareholder profits, right. <clears throat> shareholder value, and the profits that that feed that, uh, and and to do anything that might to live with that, but also do some things around the margins that change that so that you can add add value to your employees and do things that are, are right by your values just takes more more courage. And that's one of the things that we talked about. That's one of the elements of CSU leadership. The other is that you, uh, you need, as we talked earlier, but the examples of going out and spending an enormous amount of time with your people, being present uh, in an ongoing way, uh, creating an ongoing dialogue uh, with your employees is also a, a it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot easier to be an invisible leader than to be a visible visible leader because you've got to juggle that with all the other things you've got to do. But these people are extremely visible. Um, another example of CSU leadership is that these people are courageous personally. 
that they're willing to take feedback. They're not willing. They ask for it. They find ways to get their employees involved, to tell them what is going on in the company and what's going on with their leadership that's working and not working. Take, for example, Ed Ludwig at Beckton Dickinson, who has first tasks, first thing he did when he became CEO was to commission a task was to go out and interview people around the company about what were, what were its strengths and what were the barriers to to really improving the performance of the company because the performance had tanked when he, when he took it over. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that took a lot of courage because those employees came back and they told him some things that, by the way, he had a part in, in creating. So he had been shepherding an enterprise system called Genesis, and he found out that the thing was in deep trouble. The company had spent $50 million, and it was not going anywhere. <clears throat> and he had to step up and say, I own this. Uh, you know, I was part of this. And and or Val Gooding with her 360 degree feedback. So mm-hmm. personal courage to uh, to involve to 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 be vulnerable. Okay, to be vulnerable at a because the the natural tendency of of leaders is to say I got to be strong. I can't. And being vulnerable is not a way I project strength. But what these mm-hmm. leaders have found is that being vulnerable actually increases their their power in in a lot of ways to. It legitimizes them as leaders. Uh, they earn the right to lead. Earning the right to lead is not easy. Okay, right. it, it take, takes courage. So let's let's um, let's ask. I want to. My a lot of my sh- show topics um, are focused on you know business and environment and sustainability. So I, I, I this is to me an incredibly important component um, of 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 sustainability, um, even if it's an unspoken concept here. Because if you don't have leaders who lead like this, you're really not going to create the internal drive to want to do anything beyond just the number. Right. So if there was another chapter in this book, let's say the the, the addendum here. Um, and it was about sustainability. Um, how do you feel like the CEOs would view the business and environment concept and sustainability? What do you think this lens would look like? Well, you see, I, I think they all these companies in various ways uh, were absolutely concerned about the environment, about uh, sustainability issues, environmental sustainability issues. By the way, they were concerned about sustainability of the institution, and they understood that to, in, to sustain the institution, they also had to be concerned about how they treated resources. I mean, that's another way to really frame this, is that in a way, the reason sustainability is an is explicitly in many cases, but in some cases implicitly. It wasn't, it wasn't a theme that came out as the most, you know, right at the headline, we're a sustainable company. <clears throat> but the premises of how they ran led them to, to worry about sustainability and to, to be involved and to get the company focused on sustainability. Uh, because it was part of the way they thought, it was part mm-hmm. of the way they, they a responsible action as a uh, as a member of the business community within society is is to make sure that you worry about resources, people, environment, water, uh, on and on, and and so it was in that because of because of the way they thought of the of, of the purpose of the company, it was easy to think about sustainability is is obviously part of it. So mm-hmm. if you're worrying about so it, it's it, as Peter Sands at at Standard Charter did, you know, make curing preventable world blindness. If that's one your your purpose, it's just as easy, just it's natural to always think also about well, you know, what is it? What we what do we do with our environment, and how how does that how does that play in, into not only that theme but any other set of, of problems we have? So what exactly, it would look like yeah. is that the, the DCOs are have sustainability 
efforts, but they spring from their values as opposed to springing from some technical aspects of sustainability or we're doing this because we want to increase our profits. Right. It doesn't. Right. Profit is a result. It is not a purpose here. Exactly. No, this book is fabulous. I really recommend um, people buy it. Now, where, where would the best place to be for people to, to get a hold of this book? Where, where would you suggest they go? They can go to Amazon and, and get it. It's, it's okay. right on Amazon. That's okay. the easiest place to, to get it. Okay. I got it just on my iPad. I don't even know where I got I have this, this library and I just downloaded it quickly. So I am Amazon's the best place. I really do recommend it because it really, you know, people have a perception of business um, and it's, it's, it's hard and, and to, to break that perception of the CEO and how they have to be a hard driver and how they oftentimes don't have emotion and that humanity um, that we so long for and leaders and, this book really um, shed some light on on a com- certain compassion of CEOs while still being hard drivers and making the right decisions for the benefit of the company. So I really appreciate your time and 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 I encourage everybody to go out there and and, and purchase the book and and uh, and learn more about these companies and uh, will help help get the word out myself through my uh, networks. <laughs> That's great, Chrissy. Uh, we, we we all have to change the frame of how people think about business. Uh, we're we're in a mess, you know, with the mm-hmm. way companies operate and the way. They're dominated just by the financial components of, of business. And uh, uh, this is one important thing we have to do is reframe the purpose of business. Really, that's what this is about. Yeah, it's essential. It's essential. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time. And um, I hope to meet you sometime soon since we're in the same same neck of the woods. Yeah, we sure are. And uh, <laughs> thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Great. Talk to you soon. Right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.